The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour, the Dow jumps to a new all-time high, joining the S&P and Nasdaq in hitting fresh records. A strong economic data and trade deal hopes fuel a global rally. Stocks across Asia follow the U.S. higher, while Japan's Nikkei surges on the back of Wall Street's new records. The Chinese President Xi Jinping calls for cooperation to solve global disputes as Beijing appears closer to signing a trade agreement with Washington and reports suggest the U.S. could drop some tariffs. And Uber beats expectations. Okay, listen to that. Beats expectations, but shares fall in after hours as the ride-hailing giant reports a quarterly loss of more than $1 billion. CEO Dara Khosrowshahi tells CNBC when the company will be profitable. Well, we haven't finalized our planning, uh, and it's going to take a lot of hard work from, from a lot of folks. We are actually targeting 2021 for adjusted EBITDA profitability full year. Plus, in the race to dominate 5G, Ronan Dunn, the executive vice president of Verizon, tells us that the US has what it takes to compete. If it's a population race, by definition, China wins. The idea is, where is the innovation coming? And I'm very confident that in the US, we have all of the elements we need to be successful in 5G. It's not just simply about the user count. something's happened to psychology over the last couple of months as well. Maybe we've got over our obsession with central banks and liquidity. Maybe we've got our obsession with trade out of the way and we've just decided it's seasonal, let's buy the market. And I wonder how much of that there is because if you look at the lofty aspirations for many people who were trying to buy stocks, who are trying to push the market higher, they wanted lower interest rates, they wanted a trade deal, they wanted an end to geopolitical tensions. And they haven't really got any of those, have they? They didn't get the rates to the kind of levels they hoped for. They haven't got them uh, to European-style rates as well when looking lustfully from the other side of the Atlantic. We haven't got a trade deal. We're talking about, oh, phase one may well be complete if we do X. Well, what's phase one? Where did that come from? Don't you remember, only a few months ago, we were talking about all-encompassing trade deals. Now our aspirations on interest rates and trade deals have come back. Even geopolitical tensions, such as, dare I mention it, Brexit as well, are bubbling over and will go on for a very long time because we've got the mere matter of a December 12th general election out of the way. So some of the key factors that we've been talking about ad infinitum for a long time for you and I who haven't spoken Latin for a while, basically, basically they're still there, but the market's decided to go up anyway. So hence these record levels we're seeing on some of these market, new record levels on the Dow, new intraday record levels on the S&P, although it came back a tad later on as well, and on the likes of the Nasdaq. What are they moving on? Well, let's look at some of the individual stocks. I mean, why are we seeing, for instance, oil trading at its highest level since the 24th of September? Chevron moving up 4.6% on the back of that as well. What has changed? 
I think we were still talking yesterday with the IEA about the concerns about the oversupply picture. How in the first two quarters of the year, we saw no growth. Will we see any in the second half? And the net-net figures when they come out, who knows? But the likes of Boeing, 1.7% higher, 40 points on the Dow. One stock, 40 points on the Dow. Caterpillar and Deer all moving up on hopes of something out of the trade deal. But again, I talk about those aspirations. We may well move closer to phase one. That is not the deal that we would sold when this all kicked off a year, year and a half ago. Let's have a look at the Asian indices. Nikkei, again, again, big rallies across Asia. Do you remember yesterday we were talking about the Kospi and the Hang Seng moving up aggressively? Today we're talking about the Nikkei moving up 1.8%. We've got the Shanghai Composite moving up seven tenths of 1%. Even the European markets are not having too bad a time of it at the moment. In fact, quite the opposite. Some of these stocks are moving aggressively higher. Some of them justify it. Others, you're thinking, well, what's going on there? I don't quite see why this one's rallying. FTSE knocking on the door of 7,400. Uh, so we've got all this enthusiasm in the markets. Let's uh, tap into the real economy and find out what companies are talking about this morning and how they're reporting earnings. And we're going to kick off uh, this hour with ADECO, which is in the temporary staffing space in Europe and elsewhere. And the numbers, uh, as I look at them, the third quarter revenue number flat at 5.9 billion euros. So pretty much in line with the expectation as far as the poll was concerned. The net profit line is a little light of the expectation of 179 million euros. The group reporting a third quarter EBITDA of 272 million euros. Um, the company itself says this was a solid performance in the third quarter. Continued investments in IT and digital to strengthen the business. And they're going to divest uh, Solient Health in the United States. So we'll keep an eye on uh, that divestment and what they plan to do with the proceeds. We'll get an announcement, the company says, uh, as we move into the fourth quarter and then early February of next year. Alain Hayes joins us. He is the CEO of ADECO Group and he's calling in from Zurich this morning. Alain, good morning to you. Um, just, um, just give us a sense of how you uh, categorize the quarter that you've seen for the third quarter? Because I remember when we caught up in the second quarter, you were worried about some of the trends emerging in the manufacturing sector in Europe, particularly around the autos. Has any of that pressure abated? Uh, good morning, Geoff. And yes, uh, we have delivered a, a strong performance in uncertain markets. Uh, you see that we have delivered our fifth consecutive uh, quarter of uh, improvement of our gross margin, 70 uh, basis point improvement, and, and this driven by focus on our pricing and our business mix. So we are on track to deliver our yearly commitment of uh, produ productivity increase, 70 million this year, but also next year, another 130 million. And you see that our profitability or EBITDA margin is broadly stable, despite this revenue slight decline and the increased investments we are doing in IT and engineering. Coming to your question, yes, the growth is slightly impacted by the economic uncertainty especially in the auto and in the manufacturing sectors. You see our, our revenues are down 2% year on year. And, and this is quite consistent with the, the weaker macroeconomic environment and the market trends uh, we are facing, especially in the automotive and manufacturing sectors and especially in many European economies. Uh, we have a, a double-digit year-on-year decline in Germany and Switzerland in the automotive 
uh, a strong double-digit decline year on year in the Netherlands and Belgium in the automotive, but not only on the, the automotive. Also, you see that that manufacturing is is softer. Also linked to the the eurozone manufacturing PMI, which is in October, which was at in October at uh, 45.7, so really uh, below uh, the 50. That's in a nutshell how I would uh, describe the the performance of the third quarter. Do you see any of these trends stabilizing? What was interesting in the second quarter, I quote, the mood is shifting and becoming more downbeat. That was your line to us in the second quarter. Do you see any shift in the third quarter that suggests a bottoming here or a stabilization that might justify perhaps uh, financial markets becoming more enthusiastic about the outlook? What we have observed in the third quarter was a slight uh, further deceleration. Now we, we went from, by trading days adjusted, we, we went from in Q2 from minus three to minus four. But what we have seen in September and October is that this, this minus four has stabilized and that we have entered the fourth quarter with the same figure of, of the Q3. We have a limited visibility. But based on, on, on these figures, we could say that, yeah, at, at least some countries have now uh, stabilized. Uh, we see that in, in different uh, European countries. Uh, for example, Iberia is now uh, for the second quarter positive. We had the revenues up 9%. Not only Iberia, uh, Spain, uh, Portugal, but also Japan. Strong results in Japan. Uh, the revenues are up 18%. And, and also or um, what we call solution business, out placement, talent development, uh, general assembly, reskilling, upskilling are really up. Uh, we have a first quarter positive in, uh, in Liège-Tarrison, uh, 13% uh, revenue growth after nine quarters of, of negative growth. So a great, uh, great achievement of the team there. And also General Assembly, which is the global leader in upskilling and uh, reskilling in, in digital capabilities, with 31% growth. So also a, a positive, um, very positive development of the acquisition we did last year. Alain, let me shout out for Europe for once. I mean, we, a lot of people spend a lot of time bashing it as well. The unemployment rate in Europe is virtually half of what it was six years ago. We were talking about 11, plus a bit of change in 2013. Now we're talking just over 6% as well. These are terrific figures compared with the recent historical averages as well. Where are the wage increases? The wage increases is indeed uh, still limited in the vast majority of the countries. And we can explain this uh, with two reasons. Uh, first of all, we should not forget that in many countries, the, and the average unemployment is uh, still high, uh, around 8 9% in countries like France, for example, and many other European countries. Spain is another example. So average unemployment still high in many countries, not only the average unemployment, but also the youth unemployment in many European countries, but also outside Europe, the, the youth unemployment is still at the double uh, level of the average unemployment. So it means that you have still this reservoir uh, of, of supply. That's point one. And second, you have also still a lot of productivity reserve in the company, technology playing also a role, and which means that the the pressure on the wage inflation is limited to countries where you have a real, very low structural unemployment. 
Germany is one example. That's where you have a, a more inflation than, than the other countries, or even the U.S., because there you have an, an average unemployment below the, the, the four, around the 4%. Switzerland is another example. But still, uh, with wage inflation quite limited to um, between 2 and 4% uh, on average in many countries, Alan, or in these countries. I would love to ask you more questions. We'll get another chance, I'm sure, very soon. Thank you very much indeed for spending time to speak to us today, Alan. Alan de Hayes, who is the CEO of ADECO Group. I find that an extraordinary comment from Alan as well. And again... Yeah. We have this huge reservoir of young talent to go onto the market, yeah? Mm -hmm. to, but mm -hmm. we're telling them to go forth and invest in their careers, spend more euros and dollars than they've ever spent historically on their tertiary educations, mm -hmm. and yet we don't know what the jobs are for them thereafter. Uh, have, I would be terrified. You know I am terrified for my children. Did you know what? I mean, I yes. think this is. Uh, I did actually, yeah. Well, this is. You, you're slightly unusual in that sense because Many you're ways. talking about graduates and people going on to university initially. But the, the point is does anybody have clarity at that point? I don't think so. You talk to an 18 year old today, I don't think they. Unless they were born knowing they wanted to be doctors or engineers, okay. yeah, yeah. those people don't have me. clarity about what Run they want to do. Okay, so you don't have clarity, yeah. but there's someone out there, and it's not Alan, but someone mm. out there is telling you, go forth and spend $250,000 on your tertiary education, because mm. by the end of it, those gig jobs will be there. Those fourth industrial revolution jobs mm. will be there. Those coding jobs will be there. I say to those people, what are these mythical jobs for the 21st century that you're telling these youngsters to spend $250,000 dollars on average or not on average very often i give you that's that's quite a high-end figure mm. very often spending between 150 and 250 thousand dollars on your education but you don't know what those jobs are going to be mm. show me the computer that won't be able to outcode anyone within five years right and the alternative is go and get a job apprenticeships Right. Get companies to invest in stuff. Get companies mm. to basically not say, go and get this education and you'll be fine at the end of it. Get people to get into the workplace earlier. Get the schools working yeah. at those jobs as well with those companies as part of it. That'll help the productivity. Yeah, and yet consistently surveys indicate that people that come out at degree level earn more over their lifetime Do they? than Do they? would be earned by people get who James don't. Get James Reid back on here. James Reid, Reid Employment, he was yeah. fantastic on tertiary education. He was mm. one of the biggest employment agencies on the planet as well. Look, Go forth, get your degree, but spend the money when you know what you're going to do. When you know, why yeah. do it straight away? Sure. Why uh, does everyone have to do their degree at 18? Uh, you just said no one knows at 18, right. and yet you're telling people to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on it at that age. Yes. That's crazy. Uh, that's just how it is, though, right? No, it's not how it is. I didn't right. get my degree at 18. Uh, no, you didn't. But a lot of people did. Or went on to do well, that. I did degree. my degree. My degree, I think, helped my yes. career. But yes. I didn't do it at 18. No, you didn't. No. Um, <laughs> did we resolve anything with this? We'll, yes, we we'll come back to it. Yes, we'll come we back. Well, I think what we what we made clear is we are concerned about the way uh, skills and education match up at this yeah, point. It's ridiculous, right? Um, Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for the world to stand firm against protectionism while pledging to further improve his country's investment environment. Xi used his opening address at the China International Import Expo to call for more open trade while not mentioning the U.S. by name. That's amid multiple reports that Washington is considering Chinese demands for both existing and upcoming tariffs to be halted as a compromise ahead of the signing of a phase one trade deal on U.S. soil. Let's get out to Eunice, who has this report from the Expo in Shanghai. President Xi Jinping is hammering home China's message to global investors that the Chinese consumer is critical 
to future business. In his keynote address this morning, President Xi pledged that China's door would only open more. Of the problems confronting the world economy, none can be resolved by a single country alone. We must all put the common good of humanity first, rather than place one's own interest above the common interest of all. We must have a more open mindset and take more open steps, and work together to make the pie of the global market even bigger. As part of that effort, President Xi highlighted that China would launch its new foreign investment law on January 1st, further lower tariffs, and sign high-standard free trade agreements with more countries, saying about trade barriers, we should break the wall instead of building one. But President Xi's speech is being met with some skepticism. Executives are pointing out President Xi's contradictory messaging from last week, which stressed the importance of enhancing state governance in the economy. In its ongoing trade negotiations, Washington has struggled to get Beijing to open up its markets. And French President Emmanuel Macron is here, but most other Western nations are sending lower-level delegations, or none at all, like the Americans. And that has created a credibility gap for China. President Xi addressed what has been dubbed as promise fatigue, saying China keeps its promises. What we say counts. Yunus Yun, CBC Business News, Shanghai. Chinese President Xi Jinping has met with Hong Kong Chief Executive Carrie Lam at the trade event in Shanghai. The meeting comes after another weekend of violence during anti-government protests in the semi-autonomous city. According to Chinese state media, Xi expressed his support of Carrie Lam and said ending chaos and restoring order is a top priority. Still to come on the program, will a general election solve Brexit? Uh, Wilfred Frost is going to sit down with the former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair for an exclusive interview at 9.15 CET. People say about Blair, he won a few elections, he knows how to win an election. Anyway, but before that, $1 billion in quarterly losses doesn't stop Uber offering a light at the end of the tunnel on its road to profitability. I'd love to see where, how that works. Anyway, that target date when we return. And, and of course, uh, we have the Squawk Box podcast available if you would like to go back and listen to the first half hour of the program. You can find that on cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Have a listen. Download today's episode. We'll be right back after this. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. everybody. Uber shares dropped more than 5% in extended hours after the ride-hailing company posted a third quarter loss that topped a billion dollars. However, on. that can't be right. On. Have we got the read right? They, their revenue was up 30%. Yes. Their revenue was up 30%. Yes. There's no way that this, these reads could be right, that there was a 28% increase in the EBITDA loss. Yes. But that's the wrong marginal utility, isn't it? Surely, surely there's economies of scales in here. Yes. Um, however, the results beat analyst estimates uh, on both the top <laughs> and the bottom lines with revenue jumping revenue 30%, 30% year on year. Year over year, as you pointed out. But how out. could the EBITDA loss have gone through the roof? Uh, uh, astonishing, isn't it? 
Um, Uber is spending heavily on new ventures like Uber Eats and self-driving cars. But CEO Dara Khosrowshahi told CNBC the company would be profitable, would be profitable by the end what, of 2021. It was a very significant beat on the top line in terms of revenue growth accelerating and the bottom line. Uh, we increased our 2019, the midpoint of our guidance in as far as EBITDA goes by $250 million. Uh, and I'll tell you, Deirdre, while we haven't finalized our planning, uh, and it's going to take a lot of hard work from, from a lot of folks, we are actually targeting 2021 for adjusted EBITDA profitability full year. Uh, well, let's pick up with Karen. Uh, Karen and Elizabeth are both at the Web Summit in Lisbon and talking all things tech. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Jeff. The Uber conversation very much fits into a broader conversation happening here at Lisbon at Web Summit about valuations after the high-profile flops by a number of unicorns this year. It has raised questions about what lies ahead, whether there's a correction coming for these existing names, what the pipeline is for those in private markets hoping to come to public markets. So if we just run through those Uber numbers, both Elizabeth and I have been looking through them overnight. And let me just pull out some positives. I, I know very much there are question marks about the negatives, but the the loss was better than what we saw in the second quarter. That was the real red flag that went up for markets when we saw the loss of $5.2 billion. Of course, there were some one-offs there associated with the stock market listing of this company, but at $1.16 billion in losses this time, certainly better than a number that had a five in front of it for me. Also, the revenue improving because at a very low base in the second quarter, investors were saying, well, how much run rate do we have? If the revenue is now starting to decline and we're not getting the numbers we want on that side, is the game up? But the revenue at $3.8 billion just did enough. I think in this quarter. Absolutely. And the other key metric that, you know, analysts certainly were excited to hear is that this comment from the CEO that they would reach profitability in 2021. Now that is earlier than the company had said. It comes on the back of Lyft saying it would reach profitability in Q4 2021. So pushing ahead that timeline for when it says it will turn a profit, it just seems that investors aren't totally buying it here. He didn't exactly talk about how they're going to actually make more money. He wouldn't say they were going to raise costs of, of rides. They weren't going to, they are already struggling with regulations on the driver front. So it seems unlikely that they'll lower fees for drivers or they lower pay for drivers. So ultimately, I think there's certainly a, it's a noble goal, but there's a lot right. of questions about how they're going to get there. I went digging around 2021 because it seems like a number that's just plucked out of nowhere. Why 2021? Well, that was the time frame that Lyft, its rival, also started put down in, in a time frame for investors to think about in terms of profitability. Also, when the second quarter numbers came out from Uber, there was some number crunching and some professors thought that there were about 15 quarters, really, that the company had to try and turn a profit. It's 15 quarters based on its current cash at about 15 billion then. Now, if you look at the cash, it's about 12.7 billion. There was a little bit of a raising during the quarter through unsecured notes, but also the sale or closing of an investment in one of its advanced technology areas. So effectively, what we've been told, eight to nine quarters that it's aiming at to be profitable, not 15 that some thought it had in terms of run rate. My question is how long investors will remain committed and whether it does actually have eight to nine quarters to get to profitability in this type of climate. And no doubt. And there's a lot of concern about the shares that are being there's the lockup shares that will be expired tomorrow. Yes, incredible 1.5 billion shares. So it's a lot of pressure on on the current stock, looking like people just will want to get out of this stock who bought in early on because they might not be willing to rate around that long. Even as Uber is making these investments in other segments, 
you know, we did see really impressive growth of 64% in Eats, but that's still a very, very small slice of Uber's revenues. And it's unclear exactly how they're going to get to that point in that business, that they're going to fend off any of the very strict competition. Well, that's an important factor. What do you do in the meantime before you get to profitability? Do you try and increase prices, which we know that's unlikely to happen given all the competition in this space? Can't pay drivers more. That's a pressure on the cost side. And then what have you got? Delivery. You hope that business grows fast enough so you can use some of the revenue to offset some of the losses elsewhere. I spoke to Patty Cosgrave, who is the CEO and founder of Web Summit, about Uber. Our company's also been here at Web Summit over the years. Take a listen to what he had to say about focusing on the good in the business. I think there is value there. The question is the price. And uh, many people are just saying that this company can't sustain the valuation that it's currently at, and it's due a, a major correction. I think for Uber, they may just have to focus down on the you know, singular verticals and markets that are profitable. Paddy Crossgrave, there are about hard choices that the likes of Uber are going to have to make on their investments. You can't do it all. I think that's been the message coming through from this company, but also the message for other startups out there that want to run fast and break things very much like a Facebook, that they're going to have to make those choices. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.